turn to the theme of the letter. These verses shape the entire book of Romans. This is the book of Romans in two verses. Uh, and the temptation is to try and preach 72 sermons in one sermon because the whole book is here to explain it, but we will try and keep ourselves to time. And these are just... You probably know these verses. You've probably memorized them if you've been a Christian a while. But in it is just the most incredible truths, and I cannot wait to preach it, though I'm daunted by it. So let's ready ourselves to hear the word of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me pray. Our God and Father, may you bless the reading and the preaching and the applying of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The novel, All the Light We Cannot See, by Anthony Dore, begins with suspense. 7th of August, 1944, France, three weeks post-D-Day. He writes this, At dusk they pour from the sky. They blow across the ramparts, turn cartwheels over rooftops, flutter into the ravines between houses. Entire streets swirl with them, flashing white against the cobbles. Urgent message to the inhabitants of this town. They say, depart immediately to open country. He describes a scene where from the plain above, thousands and thousands of leaflets are littered on this French port city. With those words, depart immediately to open country. The book cuts to a sixth-floor apartment in this city where a 16-year-old girl, Marie Law, sits in her sixth-floor apartment alone. She's running her fingers over a beautifully created model of that very city that her father has built for her. She traces her hand through the streets, runs her hands over the cathedral. It's eerily quiet, but she can hear a hum. So she opens the windows of her bedroom. The hum is louder, but there's no other noise, except for a flapping sound. A sheet of paper has lodged itself against the ledge of her bedroom sh shutters. She holds it to her nose, smells it. It's fresh, newly printed. And then the author goes on to describe the rest of her room. We see seashells stacked on her wardrobe, pebbles along her baseboard. And then in the corner of her room, a cane walking stick, and open on her bed, a braille novel. And as the reader 
the obvious dawns on you. She's blind. She cannot read the paper. She doesn't know that six American bombers are approaching her city to level it and to destroy it, to halt the Germans' army advance to attempt to control Europe. If you knew she was in there, what would you do? As a reader, you want to race up to her room and yell at her, Marie, we must flee. You likely wouldn't feel any embarrassment or shame. You desperately plead with her to come because you know without a shadow of a doubt the desperateness of the situation and you know there's only one guaranteed way of salvation. And this scene so well depicts the verses and the text that we read today. Last week we saw in verse 15, if you cast their eyes there, Paul said, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And verses 16 and 17 explain why Paul is eager. Paul is eager to preach the gospel, verse 16, because he's not ashamed of it. He has no embarrassment at this present moment. He's like us as the reader of the novel. We know what is coming. We know that the only way of salvation is to tell this poor blind girl, bombers are coming, you will be destroyed. And Paul knows that there is a desperate problem with humanity. If you read verses 18 through to chapter 3, verse 20, the problem is the wrath of God is being revealed against humanity. God will come in judgment against all human beings, Jew and Gentile, for their sin. The bomber is coming. And Paul knows that there's only one way of salvation. And so he is eager to race into that room and declare, we got to go. We must leave. He knows that the world, the Romans, our city is like that blind girl. Perhaps they can hear the hum, but they can't read the leaflet. They're holding the paper, perhaps, but they don't get it. They won't get it. They're in grave danger. And yet we know there is a way of salvation. There is a guaranteed way of escape. But to be honest, for myself and perhaps for you, in the peacetime, without the harm of the engines above and the threat of the bomb dropping at any moment, there is the tendency to actually feel ashamed of the gospel. Perhaps you feel that. Like Scott mentioned in his exhortation, what stops us from shouting out? Either we don't apprehend it, the reality, or we are afraid of what people will think. And the reality is, is that in our world, we will constantly be shamed for the gospel. You know, we sit here and we, we believe these truths, we sing these songs, but what if your colleagues or your neighbors or your family members were to walk in right now and ask you, do you, do you believe that? 
all the world is going to hell unless they believe in Jesus. Is that what you really believe? You believe that God is going to punish sin. Is that what you really, I can't believe. What would you say? What would your response be? Perhaps today you might be like, well, yes, yeah, I do. But what about when you're in the lunchroom at work or if your job was on the line? Or it means that whoever you're dating is going to break up with you. Would you say, yes, this is what I believe? You need to believe it too. Would you be tempted because of the shame that the gospel can bring to us to change the message? Churches all over Sydney, in response to the shame that the gospel brings, change the message of the gospel. Either by commission or omission. They actually change what it says. And God, no, God's a God of love. He won't judge you. Everyone's in. Or by omission. They only talk about the nice bits and never tell you that the bombers are coming. What would you say? What do you say? What do you really believe about this gospel message? How do we overcome that persistent feeling of nagging shame and embarrassment? Well, we must fuel ourselves with the grandness and the desperation of the gospel once again. And that's exactly what Paul is getting done in verses 16 to 17. In verses 16 to 17, Paul is explaining why he is not ashamed of the gospel. So he's eager to preach the gospel. Why? Because he's not ashamed of it. Now, Paul probably did feel shame at times. That's why he says, has to make clear, I'm not ashamed of it, because he probably did feel that nervousness. But he's saying, I'm not ashamed of it. And then in verses 16 to 17, he provides reasons why he's not ashamed. And as we study these reasons why Paul wasn't ashamed, they can become reasons why we don't have to be ashamed so that we don't change the gospel. And then we can go out in power to tell our friends and our family and this dying world that there is hope. There is a way of escape. We can brandish the leaflet no matter what people think and tell them, we're running. Are you coming with us? Because there is salvation if you do. So we're going to see four reasons why we don't need to be ashamed of the gospel. I don't think I'll get to all four, but I'll have four. So we'll see how we go. Four reasons, the power of the gospel, the potential of the gospel, the provision of the gospel, and the purpose of the gospel. One hope, that you and I would not be ashamed of the gospel, but instead be inflamed by the power and the glory of the gospel today. So let's look at point number one, the power of the gospel. Read Romans 1.16. So 15, I am eager to preach the gospel. 16, for because I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. When it comes to the all-important task of cutting a fine edge in my lawn and making sure it looks incredible, 
I have a very powerful tool. It's the Shindaiwa T26 uh, weed trimmer. And I love that piece of equipment. I have absolutely no shame, especially when I see my neighbor across the road, not Henry, other neighbor, desperately trying to do his edge with this pathetic thing that doesn't ever do it. And I just want to walk over and do it for him with my Shindaiwa and actually cut the edge properly because his little one is just like flapping along and massaging the grass. I just want to see, cut. I have no shame in pulling out my Shindaiwa because it's like an outboard motor. That thing will cut through anything. It's got this power because it gets the job done. When Paul thinks of the gospel, he's not ashamed because, boom, he knows it has the power to get the job done. There's no ifs or buts or maybes. It's going to cut through every time. And what's the job? What's it powerful for? For, Paul tells us, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, what does Paul mean by salvation here? We usually, and up until recently, until I studied it and was listening to a sermon by John Piper on it, we usually think conversion, power to save people. And that is true, and that's a biblical idea, but it's actually not really what Paul is saying in this text. Paul doesn't use the word saved often in that past tense conversion. He often uses the word save in the future tense or eschatological salvation. Salvation at the end of the time. Because remember, what's the message of the gospel? Jesus Christ came from heaven, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, was buried in the grave, rose again from the dead to give us new life. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling the world. And one day, what will he do? He will return. And when he returns, what will he do? He will judge the earth. All human beings will be judged on the final day. Every, you and I will be judged and have to give an account for every careless word the Scriptures say. So when Paul says the gospel has the power for salvation, he's talking about that day. The gospel has the power to save you on that day. When Jesus returns like that bomber and comes down, the gospel, your faith in the gospel has the power to get you through the judgment of Christ. Let's think of it in four ways. There's the negative side of it. We are saved by the gospel from the wrath of God. It's the fleeing from the city. So the believing in the gospel saves you from the wrath of God. You have to have wrath for there to be a gospel. If there's no bomber, then there's no need to leave the city. But God is coming and he will judge the world. And if you believe in the gospel, you'll be saved from God's wrath. Verse 18, you see the wrath of God is coming. Positively, so negative, say from the wrath of God. Positively, we are saved for future glory. If you look forward to Romans 8, you'll see Paul is taken up with this idea of future glory. Not only are we saved from wrath, but we are saved into something incredible. We will be caught up in the renewal of the cosmos. We'll be given new bodies. We'll be brought into everlasting joy. We'll be 
Romans 8.30 says we'll be glorified. I don't know what that will look like, but you and I are not just negatively saved from the wrath of God. We are positively saved into the glory of God, and you will be glorified. There's a past tense to it. To believe in the gospel, well, you, will, you are saved in the past. Like There is a salvation in the past, and there's a future tense to salvation. You will be saved, which is what I was saying before. The, Paul mainly thinks of salvation in the future. Look at Romans 5, 9 to 10. Flick over to Romans 5, 9 to 10. And again, another insight from John Piper. This is actually Romans 1, 16 and 17 flipped in reverse order. But you'll see, you'll see these, this theme here. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that's verse 17 of Romans 1, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 18. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, that's past tense salvation, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So you see there that salvation is actually future in Paul. So the gospel has the power to save you. And when he says that, he means it will save you on the end day. It will get you all the way to the end, which is what you actually need. It doesn't just make your life better here on earth. It doesn't just give you connection to God now. But on the end day, belief in the gospel will be the dividing line between whether or not you go to heaven forever or hell forever. So how does this power get unleashed? How does the gospel power get unleashed in your life? Well, what is the gospel? It's a message. It's words that must be proclaimed so the power of god that saves us for that from that future judgment is de- evidenced or demonstrated or made happen through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel and so the way we can have confidence like i have confidence with my whippersnipper uh, paul has confidence uh, the way we demonstrate that is by preaching the gospel, is by going across the road and going, let me just take your edge for you. I can do it. I could do it. I promise you. You demonstrate your confidence in the power of the gospel by preaching it. And you can have confidence that when you preach it, it will change lives because it's the word of God. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 says this of the word of God. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall, be my, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Paul's got this confidence because he's got a message, which is the word of God, and he knows that the word of God gets the job done. Now, it doesn't mean that it gets it done every time. If you just preach the gospel, someone becomes a Christian. It's not like that. It, the word of God gets done what the sovereign God wants to get done in that moment. But you can be confident that that's how God's going to get it done. That's why Paul's eager to preach the gospel, because he wants to bear fruit. He anticipated, if you remember verse 14 and 15, that he will bear fruit, or verse 13 rather. He wants to see a harvest, and so he's like, I'm going to go preach the gospel to you, because it's going to save people past and save them for the future. That's why he says in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of 
Christ. Okay, so why shouldn't we be ashamed of the gospel? Well, when we announce the gospel, it has the dynamic power to save sinners negatively from the wrath of God, positively to future glory, past tense conversion, and future tense on the day of judgment. That's why Paul's not ashamed to share the gospel with people because it gets the job done. Nor should we. Do you believe that the gospel has the power to save your next door neighbor or your family member or your spouse or yourself? It has the power. It is the power. But who is this gospel for? That leads us to point two. So point one was the power of the gospel. Second reason Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, the potential of the gospel. Look at 1.16 again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The second reason why you and I do not need to be ashamed of the gospel is because the gospel has the power and potential to save all types of people, Jew or Greek. There is no limit to the potential of the gospel. It is powerful to the nth degree. You know, we often think, oh, but they're so far away. They could never, they're so against it. They could never believe. I mean, if you think about what the gospel is, and you imagine trying to you're like, there's so much to, I mean, there's a whole Bible to explain the gospel. And you think, how am I going to tell them the gospel in three minutes before they get off the bus? I, but the potential of the gospel, it can save anyone and everyone, Jew or Gentile, who has faith. The basis of salvation is Faith, and that's what he's going to talk about in verse 17. The reason why the gospel has the potential to save anyone is because salvation is not by works. No one is here this morning who is regenerate or saved because they were good. No one can come before God and say, well, yes, Jesus died on the cross, and yes, he rose again, and yes, I was born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, and yes, yes, it's you, but I also contributed. I kept myself in. I believed. I read. I prayed. I studied. I gave. I fostered a child. I, you know, I sponsored a child. I, I, I really am... Sa- no, no, no. Salvation, he says, can save anyone because it's not about what we do or what we don't do, what we do positively or what we do negatively. It's about faith. It's not based on your works. It's not based on your family history. It's not based on your performance or your devotion, your intellect, your education... Thank God it's not based on our attractiveness, our strength, our power, or our prestige. It is based on the most empty of all categories, our faith. Believing is a humble act. It puts you in a dependent situation. There's an ad... It's a stupid ad. I don't know what the point of it is. It's a, it's a betting ad, and this is a million betting ads at the moment. But there's this guy, like this buff dude, who's going to give presumably like authority over the barbecue to this guy. And he's got a pair of tongs. And he's like, okay, you now get the tongs. And he goes to give them to him and then takes them away. And he gives them to him, takes them away. 
And so that, that moment, that guy's in a dependent position because he's believing he's about to receive this gift and then it's taken away from him again and it sort of humbles him and shames him. Now, belief puts you in that dependent position. To put your faith in Christ is to say, okay, I'll, I'll receive what you're giving and I hope it works. I don't know for sure. I can't be 100% certain that if I put my faith in Christ, I will be saved. That's the point of faith. It goes with doubt. You don't know 100%. No one has 100% certainty. So faith puts you in a dependent position. It's not your works. It's based on his works. And so you say, okay, I trust that what you have done is enough. I trust that if you say, I believe I'll be saved, I actually will be saved. And this smashes any pride in your life or my life. Smashes any pride in the Roman church between Jew and Gentile. The Jews who might have thought, well, we have the patriarchs. We have the promises. We have the law. We are the chosen people of God. And Paul says, no, it's for anyone who believes. That's what brings you in. Faith is the great leveler. We are all equal in this room. There are no better Christians or worse Christians or higher Christians and lower Christians. Anyone who has their faith in Christ is saved and will be saved. It's like a life jacket. If you're on a ferry from Parramatta down into the city for work, I don't know if anyone does that. That would be a sweet way to get into work every day. Um, pretty nice on the water there. But if you're wearing a life jacket, not that you do on those ferries, but imagine you all do. It doesn't matter how good or bad you are as a person, how moral or immoral, smart or dumb, whatever. If you're wearing the life jacket, the ferry hits something and you topple into the water, you'll bob up. That's what faith is. We're wearing a life jacket and we're, we don't contribute anything to it we're just floating about. <laughs> that's, that's how salvation comes. And that's good news because that means that anyone that you speak to can be saved. All they have to do is receive what Christ has done. So that's another reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel saves. It's the power of God and has all the potential in the world to save anyone. So he enters a situation, we can enter a situation going, man, it does not look like in this moment this person could ever become a Christian. However, in a moment, they can instantly become a Christian by faith. They don't have to do certain practices to earn their way in. They don't have to learn all the Bible. They don't have to study everything to grasp upon Christ. All they have to do is believe in him in that moment and boom, their eternity is changed. So Paul is not ashamed to go into Rome, the capital of the world, all the poetry, all the philosophy, all the power and be like, well, I'm just going to tell them the gospel and see what happens. So number one, the power of the gospel. Number two, the potential of the gospel. And thirdly, the provision of the gospel. Why is this gospel so powerful to save anyone who believes? Well, that's what Paul tells us in verse 17. How can this gospel actually save anyone? Well, let's have a look at it. Let's put 16 and 17 together. And this is what he's going to go on to really explain the rest of the book of Romans. For in it, that is, oh sorry, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. How does it save? For in it, 
The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Put simply, the gospel reveals God's gracious provision of salvation to us, which is his very own righteousness as a gift. That's my one-sentence summary attempting to try and put that all together. So the gospel reveals God's gracious, righteous provision of salvation to us, which is his own righteousness as a gift. It's hard to... And it's hard to overemphasize just how much literature is on this verse. But I, I want to try and keep it simple for us so that it works for us today and makes sense. I, I'm not claiming that I have fully exhausted every part of this verse. I, I just, there is literally so much in it. it it's incredible. Uh, but I want, us, I want us to just go through it bit by bit so we can try and understand it because it will unlock the rest of Romans for us. So as we've said, the great problem of humanity is our unrighteousness. That's only a problem because God is righteous and he hates unrighteousness. Look at verse 18. For, so again, that's connected to what we just said, the gospel is good news, salvation to all who believe, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For, why does this matter? Well, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So, the righteousness of God is both the problem and the solution. If God wasn't righteous, then he wouldn't care about our unrighteousness. But Paul says God's righteousness is good news. He's excited. He's not ashamed of it. He's eager to tell people of God's righteousness. But if it's the problem, how can it be the solution? Well, this is why Luther, if you know the story of Martin Luther, he hated this verse. He was a monk. He was a teacher of the Bible. He was a seminary professor. He was a preacher. And he hated Romans 1.17 because he knew, and perhaps you know this too, he is unrighteous. He knew. He couldn't. He couldn't pull the wool over himself. He couldn't justify himself. He couldn't be like, well, you know, I've done, like, I know I, I don't do everything right, but I am, you know, trying to do some things right. And he knew, he knew, he knew, and perhaps you do too, that at the depth of your being, you know, I'm not right with God, holy God, and there's nothing I could do to make up for it. The gulf, the chasm is too large. His perfection is too great. My sin is too heinous and deliberate and widespread. And so he lived his life trying desperately to try and earn or reconcile in his heart how he could be righteous with God. And he, he was taught, mistaught, that if you do these certain actions, if you do these certain prayers, if you do these certain things, you, you will be righteous enough. And you'll be finally accepted in. And so he ended up in Rome and he was on these steps going into a church. And there was this practice that if you 
climbed these steps on your knees and you kissed the steps because they thought that's where Christ went into Pilate's headquarters, that you would attain righteous merit on your bank account so that when you're judged in the end, you won't go to hell, you'll skip time in, the, in purgatory. And so he hated this verse because in this verse, it says the righteousness of God is going to be revealed. And he didn't want the righteousness of God to be revealed because that would mean his unrighteousness would be revealed and judged. And so he's, he's meditating on this verse and he's trying to figure it out. He's like, ah, what does it mean? The righteous shall live by faith and the righteousness of God. And he knew he wasn't good. And then it dawned on him on these steps as he's meditating on this verse and his son wrote this as Luther told them the story one night. He said, this is what dad said. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Why? What led to such a transformation for Luther? I wonder if you can see it. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Luther had misunderstood what the righteousness of God meant there. Not completely, but he didn't understand how to attain it, how that could be good news. So what is the righteousness of God? That's all important. It's, it's a common term in Romans, about not eight times in Romans, and one time in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. There's three things we can say about the righteousness of God in this verse that I think will help us understand what Paul is saying. Firstly, the righteousness of God is an attribute of God. Now, this is uniform throughout the Old Testament, saying that God is righteous. He's right in all that he does. Secondly, though, the righteousness of God in the Old Testament is also an action of God. It's an activity. If you read the Psalms, you see lots of times where the link is between, I will demonstrate my righteousness, and then the, the follow-on from that is salvation. And so he says, I'm going to show my righteousness. So it's not just an attribute, it's something he does. He, he demonstrates righteousness. He brings righteousness, how? By saving people. In the Old Testament, the most powerful display of his righteousness in salvation was in the Exodus. And in the New Testament, the most powerful display is, in, is on the cross of Christ. So the righteousness of God is an attribute of God. It's an action of God where he demonstrates it to his people by saving them. And then lastly, and this was the breakthrough, which results in a new status for believers. So the righteousness of God is who God is. It's an action. And then this is the breakthrough. It's a gift given to anyone who has faith. So I just, I just so want all of us to understand we are sinners, unrighteous in the sight of God. We don't really understand it, but we are holding the paper. We are going to be judged for every wrong deed. It's coming. Everyone in the world, if this is true, will be judged. And yet, 
Romans 1.17 tells us that the righteous shall live by faith, quoting Habakkuk 2.4. That is, you can escape the righteous judgment of God or you can escape being judged by him by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And the way that that works is that you are credited to your account the very righteousness of God, the holy God of the universe, perfect in all of his holiness, will put onto your court case righteous. I don't know how to make it clearer. I don't know how to press it into your soul. I want you to believe it and understand On that day, when the creator of the world, Jesus Christ, comes with his angels on the clouds and separates the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, despite all of your actions... He will look upon you and declare you righteous, saved from his wrath. And so that's why Paul is unashamed of the gospel because he's holding the paper and he knows there's only one way out and I know the way out. Listen to me. Believe in me. It's Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust only in Jesus. It's him and you will be righteous in God's sight. It's a gift. The greatest gift you could be given is to be declared righteous in God's sight. Andy Nacelli says it like this. This is his summary of Romans 1.17. The righteous God, attribute, righteously, activity, righteouses the unrighteous. The righteous God righteously righteouses the unrighteous. And if you read on to 3.21 to 26, Paul mentions it twice. How can a righteous God make unrighteous people righteous? Well, you'll have to wait till we get there. But that's his answer is the gift of justification by faith alone. So this is why Luther felt like he'd entered paradise because finally he realized he can be safe on that day of judgment for certain. He can know I'm going to be in a field far away from when the bombs are dropping. I know that I know that I know. And so he's like, I'm in paradise now. What else could matter? What else could take? I'm there and everyone needs to know. John Piper says it like this. The reason the gospel is the power of God for salvation or the way that the gospel saves believers is that in it, God reveals a righteousness for us that God demands from us. What we had to have but could not create or supply or perform, God gives us freely, namely his own righteousness, the righteousness of God. So friends, if you have believed in Jesus Christ right now, 
you are in God's sight legally declared righteous. Your life doesn't look like it, but in God's sight, you are declared righteous and you will, by continual faith in Jesus Christ, be saved on that day. Rejoice, clap, dance, sing, shout about it because it's true and it's grand and it's glorious and it's amazing. If you're not yet a Christian today, if you haven't yet believed or to use the words of verse 5, obeyed the gospel, then you're like that girl. You're holding the leaflet, but you're not in safety. Judgment will come upon you. If this is true, I believe it is. Judgment, the wrath of God, will be revealed on the last day against you. And on that last day, there is no second chance. So it's imperative that you decide or figure out, what don't I believe about this gospel? Because eternity is on the line. You need to be really, really, really sure that this is not true. You need to have very, very good reason to doubt the veracity of this. Because it's such good news, it has such eternal ramification, that you need to have a very good reason why you don't believe it. Which part is it that you don't believe? You don't believe that God is righteous? You don't believe that God will judge you? Perhaps you don't believe that Jesus really is the only way of salvation? Maybe you struggle to believe that it all really happened and is true. You need to figure it out. You need to ask questions. You need to plead with God, show me this is true. Because if it is, everything will change. Your eternal future, this moment will be gone, but your eternity is at stake. And let me not leave you without an opportunity. Paul says in Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you what will be future eschatological saved. That's all you have to do today. Perhaps right now, the Spirit of God is convicting you that you need to get right with him. All you have to do right now is put your faith in Jesus. Say, I trust you for my salvation. I know I'm unrighteous. I trust you. And you will leave this building declared before a holy God righteous in his sight forever and all that goes along with it. So Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. We need not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. It is the potential to everyone who believes. Anyone and everyone can become a Christian if they put their faith in Christ. And the provision of the gospel is that if you believe, you are given the gift of righteousness and you will live. And that live there is eternal. Finally, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Point four, the purpose of the gospel. I'm just going to say this in a paragraph. I do... I've been talking about us, 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 us. But one of the major themes of Romans is not us, but God. And God's purpose in salvation is not, doesn't terminate on you or I. It's actually all about him. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 5. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all 
the nations. The purpose of the gospel to give is that God would be glorified. He said it in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, and this is where Paul goes in Romans 9 to explain why God is sovereign in salvation. For this purpose, he's speaking to Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Isaiah 43, 7, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. I just wanted to end with the purpose of the gospel so that we can not be left in our 21st century individualistic, selfish way of like, whoa, I'm saved. But grander than your salvation is a display of the glory of God over all the world. And that's why he saved you ultimately is to display his glory. And that's why Paul talks about it in Romans 3, 25 and 26. Because how does a righteous God righteously righteous the unrighteous? Only through the death of his son and paying for every one of those sins on the cross through his son. That's how God maintains his righteousness, that there is no fiction. Jesus paid it all. And therefore, God remains righteous and we become righteous. And therefore, God can still be glorified. If God just said, well, you're free, even though you're terrible sinners, even though you've besmirched my glory, even though you hate me, well, you're all saved, God would lose glory. That's why Islam doesn't make sense. Because God just forgives. But what about all the laws? What about all the rules? What about all the righteous? Well, he's merciful. Well, no, that's not glorious. God remains glorious by righteousing the unrighteous and maintaining his righteousness at the same time so that he can be glorified all around the earth, even by the ungodly. So imagine this. You're with a friend or a family member. You've got the gospel. What are you going to do with it? If you share the gospel with them, in that moment, just picture this. That person you thought could never become a Christian, the Spirit of God works on them. In that moment, their eyes are awakened. They realize, I'm under the wrath of God. I need salvation. I've got a flyer. Oh, I can read it. The bombs are coming. Okay, get me out of here. I believe in Jesus. In that very moment, your friend, your family member, your spouse can be saved. Just picture that and let that, that potential and power and purpose and provision of the gospel spur you on to not be ashamed of the gospel. Because that very friend, if they believe, you might one day see them come underwater and up again as a sign of their salvation in Christ. That's what the gospel can do. And so friends, I charge you, charge myself, do not be ashamed. Go, proclaim the gospel unto all the earth so that he might be glorified. And we're going to stand and we're going to sing a final song that just, we've sung it, I think we closed with a couple of weeks ago, but we have to sing it again. There is one gospel. And it's the glorious news. So stand, and I'm going to pray for us to close as we sing. Lord, I pray and ask that you would do a miracle right now, that you would give each one of us 
faith to not be ashamed any longer. That just as clear as that piece of paper would be to those citizens of that city. That judgment is coming and salvation is possible. That we would have no shame. Even if people would try and shame us, we would have no shame that we know the way out. Would you also do a miracle and help us to believe it for ourselves again and keep believing it? That we would go on all of our days, never turning our back on the gospel, never thinking maybe there's salvation somewhere else. And Lord, would you also do a miracle? If there are any here today, and I believe there are some, Lord, who are not saved, would you, in your mercy right now, open the eyes of their heart to believe and be saved? And would you declare them righteous in your sight through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ? Would you do it even now, Lord? May they call upon you and be saved. And may you be glorified in our midst because of what you have done. This is the greatest news ever. And you deserve all the glory, O Lord, for you did it all. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.